Hello, welcome to In the Kitchen with Brett Thorne, a food service industry podcast by Restaurant Hospitality. I'm your host, Senior Food and Beverage Editor Brett Thorne. My guest today is Rob Connolly, the extremely interesting and engaging chef and owner of Bull Rush, a restaurant in St. Louis that celebrates and reimagines, in a way, the cuisine of the Ozarks. Connolly spends a lot of time and energy researching the culinary history and foodways of the region with a particular emphasis on celebrating the contributions of Native people, enslaved people, and Black people who are not enslaved, all of whom had a major impact on the food of the past, as well as the present. Connolly also looks out for the welfare of his own employees and has an interesting model of paying everyone on staff the same, and paying all of them a living wage. We didn't have a chance in this particular interview to discuss this much, But let me explain briefly how we did it based on conversations and emails we've had before and since then. Essentially, Connolly started out calculating how to pay everyone decently, and then he developed his budget for the restaurant accordingly. So it was already part of the economic model. Since Connolly is, in his nature, a conservative person in terms of budgeting, think he's conservative in any other way, but in terms of budgeting he is. And so his revenue surpassed projections, and he has since been able to add other benefits, such as health insurance and paid time off to his employees. Connolly is also extremely opposed to food waste, and he's an avid conservationist, and so in his honor, and because it's interesting, I'd like to point you to a move that the Monterey Bay Aquarium made a few days ago. Monterey Bay Aquarium runs Seafood Watch, the list and database of seafood which it categorizes according to its sustainability using a variety of criteria. Green items are the best choice to use, yellow items are good alternatives, and red species are ones to avoid. Maybe because they're overfished, maybe because the way they're caught is harmful to the environment, or because the fishing practices endanger other species, or various other reasons that are related to sustainability. Most of American lobster caught in the North Atlantic has long been marked as yellow, meaning the fisheries are reasonably healthy, not overfished, and not too harmful to the environment. But this week, these lobsters, these are the good lobsters with the two claws that are often eaten on Valentine's Day and Mother's Day and throughout the summer, especially in New England. So they're different from spiny lobsters and langoustines and and various other large crustaceans. Uh, But these lobsters, the most popular ones in the United States, were put on the red list. This isn't because the lobsters themselves are in danger, but because the vertical lines used to haul up the lobster traps that they're that they're caught in might harm right whales. Right whales are an endangered species that swims in the North Atlantic and, according to the Monterey Bay Aquarium and other conservation groups, get caught in these vertical lines that are used in fishing and in in catching lobster. This is a leading cause of injury and death to right whales. Uh, The National Fisheries Institute, which is the trade association for the United States seafood industry, disputes that assertion. Not that vertical lines are a menace to right whales, which they are, but that the particular lines used in lobster fishing haven't been implicated in any recent injuries or deaths of right whales. 
in which case Seafood Watch is endangering the livelihoods of the people working in the lobster industry based on unfounded facts. I'm paraphrasing the uh, National Fisheries Institute statement. Uh, on the other hand, there are only around 330 North Atlantic right whales left in existence. That's just 330, and just 80 of them are breeding females, according to Oceana, which is an ocean conservation organization. So, maybe it's best to err on the side of caution. Oceana does uh, have some solutions that it recommends to the problem, like issuing moratoriums on lobster trapping when right whales are swimming in a specific area, or using what they call pop-up lobster traps, which are radio-controlled traps that, instead of having vertical lines uh, running between the, the traps and the surface of the water at all times, only extend those lines when a fishing vessel signals them to, which I assume they do only when they're checking the traps to remove the captured lobsters from them. So what should you do as a restaurateur? Maybe one who sells lobsters? Should you keep lobsters on your menu? Should you take them off? Should you do something else? Should you research where your lobsters are coming from and specifically what vertical lines they use and when right whales are swimming in the area? Maybe. Uh, it's not my job to tell you that, but it is some food for thought as you start planning your next menu. In the meantime, I now present Rob Connolly to you. He is, as I said, a charming and interesting man, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, nice to meet you for the first time for the third time. <laughs> yeah, it's always a pleasure, Rob, <laughs> to meet you on multiple occasions. Because uh, you do interesting things. You are the chef and owner of Bull Rush, right, in St. Louis? That's correct. And there's a lot, there's a lot going on that's interesting at Bull Rush, I think. You have the sort of uh, Ozark kind of anthropology approach and also the uh, reparative approach, the uh, fair treatment of your employees approach. And I just want you to talk about, uh, tell, tell our audience all about Bull Rush. Yeah, we, uh, we opened in April of 19. And at that time, I didn't really know what Bull Rush was going to become or even what I wanted it to be. I just knew that I was going to explore the food of my childhood like so many chefs before me have. And it turned out that my, uh, my childhood food was pretty bad and, and not very interesting. It was the suburbs of St. Louis in the 70s and 80s. And so there wasn't really a lot to, to chew on there. And um, I had this lingering thought of how my family was from a town called St. Genevieve in Missouri. It's about an hour south of St. Louis. And, and they had been there since the 1830s. And uh, back then, that was the big city. St. Louis was still emerging. And not really big city, but it was the, the entryway into the West. And uh, they actually have that claim to fame that it's the oldest European settlement west of the Mississippi, uh, if you don't count Santa Fe, which having moved back from New Mexico, I definitely do count Santa Fe. Right. Uh, but around here, they, they like to make that claim to fame. And, and so I thought... It'd be fun to explore that past. Uh, that's a little more interesting than the St. Louis suburbs. Uh, but even there, it just, it wasn't really what, it wasn't resonating with me. Um, I, I think 
19th century German food. I don't know if, uh, if America's ready for that, uh, if we could do a fast, casual uh, 19th century German food. So I kind of let that slide. Uh, but at that time, my spouse was doing work in the Ozarks and working with churches in the Ozarks. And I, I think, you know, just for folks who are listening, um, understanding what the Ozarks is would be helpful uh, because here, even in Missouri, people don't necessarily know what it is. It's the bottom half of Missouri in the top third of Arkansas with little tidbits of um, Nebraska, not Nebraska, uh, Oklahoma and Kansas. And it's technically just a geographic feature. It's a plateau. Uh, that pl plateau is worn down over millennia, but it technically is a plateau. And, and so that region has a distinct culture and history because of the isolation of the area. And so uh, when my spouse was doing that work in the Ozarks, I said, well, ask the little church ladies for a copy of the church cookbook. I thought, that could be interesting, right? I mean, I don't know of any chef who's done a restaurant based on church cookbooks. And as I started getting those, I ended up with, I don't know, 30 or 40 of them. I realized I'm not going to be the first chef to do that because it was all casseroles and jello salads. <laughs> but it was an interesting idea to play with. But what it did is it set me down this path of realizing that no one had done Ozark cuisine or Ozark food or foodways ever. And, you know, I, I, I make that very bold claim, knowing that there's been thousands of chefs in the Ozarks who've cooked, but no one has looked at what the origin is to create the food that we eat today. And I had to unpack that through the research. Um, the, for me, I only look at original source documentation. So letters and journals, and that worked well for the settlers. Um, and I wasn't looking at famous people, just the average person who happened to settle in the area. And I, and I thought, wow, wouldn't that be cool to retell their story, but through food? Again, not people who are famous, that's not as interesting to me, but the average person like myself and all the diners. Right. And so that's where I started, but very, very quickly realized that's a very limited scope of the origin of Ozark food and, and, and recognize that the contributions of the indigenous people, which are primarily the Osage, although there's also Western Cherokee, um, and then the enslaved and other African-Americans who may not have been enslaved who were in the area. And so those three larger cultures are the ones that we ultimately dug into and, and, and thought, wouldn't it be amazing to retell all their stories and do it through food, which it's a, it's a complicated and a messy story that people don't really want to get into, especially if they're just coming out to have a birthday dinner. But if we do it through food, we can make it not as scary and kind of empowering and exciting to, to recognize what has happened in the past and how it's influenced what we eat today. And so that, that's really the core of everything we do. And then all these other projects that you've alluded to already uh, spin off from that, that starting point. So you started by researching the European settlers. 
and and there they were writing letters home they were documenting things that was i assume much less true of indigenous and enslaved people so and as you said other african americans who were not enslaved so what kind of research did you have to do for that yeah in the research that we do what's kind of interesting is it's a one-way flow of information sort of like i i gather that stuff and i integrate it into the cooking and the work that we do. But as a white chef, I don't feel that's my story to tell in either case. And so I don't, um, you'll never hear me in the dining room say, and this is representative of the indigenous people. No, I, I don't do that. Um, I, I think that'd be doing a disservice. And so what we do is we bring people in from the outside. I've got someone coming up shortly who's going to be telling his family history as an African-American pig farmer and uh, how that came into being. And then we'll, we'll reintegrate that back into what we already do and say, and this is how it plays out. Uh, we've done that on both ends, uh, the indigenous and the enslaved and non-enslaved African-Americans. And to get more directly to your question though, uh, with the indigenous people, it kind of became easy to get that information, at least a, a good chunk of the easily accessible stuff because we have a partnership with the Osage Nation's Office of Historic Preservation and Dr. Andrea Hunter. Uh, she happened to do her doctorate here in St. Louis at Washington University. She's a paleoethnobotanist who's a member of the Osage Nation and she sent me her dissertation and said, here you go, this is what my people were eating in the, the 18th and 17th centuries, and um, do with it what you please. And, and that relationship has been really interesting because um, back in New Mexico, I worked with indigenous people quite a bit as well. And you really have to earn the trust and respect of indigenous people because they have generations of being screwed over. And so me coming saying, gimme, gimme, gimme is not well received. It's, it's more, here's my actions, not my words. And I hope at some point you'll trust me enough with the gifts you're giving me of knowledge and wisdom that I can then share on your behalf. And that's a long game. That's not something where you go to a couple workshops, shake a couple hands and call it a day. I mean, we've been going three and a half years. I don't feel that I've I've earned that yet. Um, and I may never in the history of bull rush, you know, it, that's just a reality that I experienced in New Mexico. And then it's the same with the, the African-American community, but there we're kind of taking a different approach. Again, I'm not going to tell that story. So how can I do this? And this kind of gets into what you allude to about um, repair, repair, what we call reparative restauranting. And the idea is instead of telling the story, um, why don't we try to offer reparations? And, and that immediately will put hackles on some people's backs. It's a very challenging conversation to have, even with my customers. And we don't talk about in those terms. But what we do is actions in the community. And yes, we give money. And no, I have zero connection that I know of to the enslaved because my, my family were coming into America as German immigrants at a time that the vast majority of those German immigrants were um, coming from a background of indentured servitude in Europe. 
So most of them, not all of them, of course, were um, abolitionists at that time. I, I don't know my family's conversation around that back then. Uh, so these are very broad and general um, claims. Sure. But what we've done as a staff where we don't know of any connections to enslavement is said, we're still offering a story about Ozark food. And part of Ozark food has come from the enslaved and African-Americans who, who were not enslaved. Therefore, we have a responsibility to give back in some way. And we know the failure rate of restaurants. We know restaurants aren't making millions, okay? So we do write some checks to organizations um, that are African-American agricultural organizations. Um, no questions asked. Here you go, take it. It's a, it's a cut of our profits and, and uh, do with it what you will. But the, the bigger thing for us is we're doing a project right now and we don't talk about this very often publicly. I'm doing it because this is a, a higher level audience in the conversation versus a, a customer just walking in off the street um, or even the local food press. We did... Um, genealogic research around known freed slaves from the area of my research. And we did that with the starting point of what I said before, I like firsthand accounts. And there were um, a series of interviews done during the WPA era where they interviewed freed slaves from all over the country. And it's a searchable database. And so we were able to get the, the voices of four people who were enslaved on this farm just south of St. Louis that is now a winery. And there was a slave cemetery on that property, which now doesn't exist as far as I know. That's a conversation I'm going to have in the future that's planned with the winery to say, here's what we know and how are you going to react to this when we talk publicly about it. And with our academic um, partners at St. Louis University and Washington University, we've done full genealogies, all living descendants mapped out of those um, enslaved people. And we're in the process now of reaching out to each of them and sharing that work with them. Do with it what you may. Maybe you have it, maybe you don't, maybe you want it, maybe you don't. That's not the point. Here it is, the work's been done, um, enjoy. And if I'm lucky, some of them will be excited and want to be engaged in this process where we can take it to another level. And that level might be uh, some more formal presentation of the information. I, I could see a display in our history museum, and we certainly already have the partnerships with our history museum and a number of other organizations that I'm sure would love to fund it and house it. Um, or... Maybe it's as simple as someone says, I would love to do a meal at your restaurant and tell my story, my family's story. We would love that. We would love that more than you can imagine. They can, they can have the till, my staff will do the labor and just tell your story because we all become richer by knowing that information and having that story be told and to be able to connect the dots between their enslaved ancestor and what they're doing right now would be fantastic. And so that's how we go about these things where um, they're tough. 
And I, I think most restaurants would say, yeah, I'm just going to stay away from this. But I can't look at a region's history and make money off of it and not try to make it right. Um, it's been done many times before and much profit has been made. Um, and I'm not here to judge them. You, you know, we all do what we, we can, but this is the way we're trying to do it. So how does that sort of research, uh, how is that translated into your everyday menu? <laughs> oh, yeah. Like talk about uh, some dishes that you serve. Yeah, it, it, it's funny because um, just now for the first time in three and a half years, I am prefacing a dish with, this is a direct translation from research to plate. Because normally we don't have that, right? I mean, the people that we're talking about early 19th century, late 18th century, they're not foodies. Food is survival. And so at most, you're going to get a brief mention of the food. And one of, one of my favorite uh, letters to reference, because it's one of the first and one of the oldest, and I was able to actually handle this piece of paper from 1820 out of the plastic, realizing some dude, again, no one important, wrote this letter. He had just gotten into the area in Arkansas from traveling from Boston. He made it. And this is a rugged, rough territory. I mean, right now we're like, oh, you take I-10 to 95. No, you're riding your horse through the woods. And I'll tell you, when I walk through the woods, it's treacherous. To ride a horse, packing whatever you've packed to get there. It's not a, this isn't stagecoach area. This is what's on your horse. And to make it and to set up camp. And of course, your very first thought is, I need food. And so in this letter, he writes back home to mom back in Boston. Hey, mom, I made it. And I got a deer on my first day. And I met someone down the river, and they've already shared some of their garden with me. That's cool. That is really cool. And to have that letter in my hand and, and the beautiful script, the calligraphy that they wrote with back then. And so... When I get something like that, the translation is much looser. I'm like, okay, team, we're going to do a venison dish with some garden, whatever the vegetables were that were listed in there. And we do our contemporary take on it. We're a modernist restaurant, you know, not, not we're not too heavy on the, the foams and stuff. And we don't do spheres. I mean, that's all 20 years ago, but, but we still play with our hydrocolloids and are not apologetic about it. Um, and we are in the Midwest. And so I'm, I'd like to feed people, not give them uh, dishes where they have to tell me how great I am. I want them to say, oh my God, that was so good. That's what we do here. And so that's how most of the stuff happens. We're just gonna do a venison dish because we can tell that story of the letter and that settler. The dish I referenced at the beginning of this long answer though, is um, it was a letter and in the letter, they were very specific about specific plants that they were growing in their garden and made one reference to how they were cooking. And so we take those and apply it directly to the dish. Um, it is the most simple of our dishes that's on the menu right now. Uh, it's carrots. Uh, the carrots are roasted. Now we do our fancy 2022. We know how to roast carrots better than you do, but it's carrots and um, 
there's a, a mint pesto on top with sunflower seeds. And, um, and then underneath is a beet puree. Okay, I say that if I put that on a menu like that, no one would order it, right? I mean, maybe a, a hungry vegetarian might. And so that's the, the, the fortune of doing tasting menus because guests don't have the luxury of picking. They're gonna get what I'm gonna send them and they're like, and I preface the dish with, oh, and here's the story and here's our carrots and beets and sunflowers. And I can see the look on their face that says, okay, you're about to give me a boring course. But no, of course not. I mean, you know, we, we do sous vide carrots, which that's not fancy, but we do passion fruit infused bay leaf spice bush carrots that are finished on a charcoal grill after being sous vide. And then the carrot right next to it is actually a molded carrot uh, because it's actually a panisse and it's a, a, a panisse for those who don't know is a chickpea french fry essentially and our panisse is made using carrot juice from these same carrots and by the way zoinks we've messed with you because the carrot's actually a purple carrot and we've reinforced the color with hibiscus and then the darker colored carrot is bright orange so you cut into it and they're backwards of what you would expect them to be uh, it's that kind of stuff but it's a much more direct translation than uh, here's some venison and we do whatever we want that includes venison. You said spice bush. What is spice bush? Uh, that's part of our, our foraging program. We, we still, I would never market us as a forage food restaurant in 2022, but back in New Mexico, that was what I did. Uh, and it continues here. In fact, even more so here. Uh, at our peak, we're probably, I don't know, maybe up to, I'm going to say 60% by volume foraged ingredient. That may be a little high. Uh, we're about to go into pawpaw season, so our number is going to go high again. Um, but a spice bush is an indigenous plant. It's everywhere. It's just a, a shrub on the woods that the berry uh, comes off like a black pepper nutmeg uh, or maybe even an allspice. And it different times of the year, has a different flavor, different smell. Right now it's green, so it's more uh, almost hops-ish, but then come just a month from now, it's going to turn red and then it'll get that color I just, or that flavor I just talked about. Uh, but you can use the branches, the leaves, the whole plant's usable, uh, but it's our primary spice. We use very little purchased spice in our kitchen. Almost everything is foraged or part of our zero waste project, um, you know, like let's say carrot peels dehydrated or uh, treated with a koji and then dehydrated. That, that's how we spice everything here. That sounds like a good spice, dehydrated koji fermented orange or uh, uh, carrot peel. And you do that with yeah. sauce too, I think, right? We, we do it with everything. Um, we we right, were really, we were talking about the other day. Yeah, um, the the chard is a koji right now. We're I think we're pulling out. Maybe even today we have to test it. Um, a beet peel and beet tip um, miso. Technically not miso. It's it's an amino, but uh, we take it, smush it up, add the koji and salt, and then wait. Um, I don't like food ever going in the trash. And so if I see things building up in the compost bucket, which we average about five gallons a week, then we take another look and say, all right, how, what do we need to do to not be putting this in here? Because to me, compost is waste. Trash is not even an option in the kitchen. If it ends up, if I see food in the trash, we're having to talk. 
Um, so it just doesn't happen. Um, but yeah, our, our closet's just loaded up with stuff that it's forgotten. <laughs> At some point we'll go in and say, oh yeah, I forgot about that uh, and, and pull it out and, and do something with it. Yeah, weren't you telling me about some fish sauce that was nasty, so you got rid of it, or you didn't get rid of it, you put it in the closet, but then, however many months or years later, it had it had grown up and developed into something tasty. It was god-awful. So, <laughs> it, it was pond fish. I mean, we're talking sun sunfish, bluegills, maybe crappie, I don't remember. We had done some educational event at this nature preserve, and they had a couple of fishing holes, and at this preserve, you can't even pick a flower. But because we were doing this event, they let us uh, fish for the dinner. And um, I, I just, I had forgotten how much work it is to do pond fish, like to process and cook them. Mm -hmm. And so we got, I don't know, 20. And as someone who hasn't fished in a long, long time, I was like, oh yeah, look at these fish. They were all probably like six ounces, four ounces. And once we started cutting them up, the reality kicked in. I was like, oh shit, <laughs> this is a lot of work, but we've already pulled them out and, and we got to use it now because I, I don't like waste. Right. And good thing I had staff and volunteers and they broke the fish down. And so we had all the carcasses and my team rightly, even though I hadn't thought about it yet, they said, well, what do you want us to do with this? Cause we don't throw away our, our deer bones or our pork bones. You know, we make stuff out of all that stuff. And, and I said, well, I guess throw it in the cooler and we'll deal with it back in the kitchen. And because this is like an hour out of town. And so we come back to the kitchen next day, there were the stinky bones and the scales and all that stuff. And I, I said, well, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I've, we've made fish sauces before. I've never done it with fish like this. Let's see what happens. And so we got that process going. This is very early in, in the restaurant. And uh, when I had done garum or fish sauce before, I let it go a year. And so- and how do you do it? Do you just salt it down and let it sort of putrefy or whatever? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it has to be contained properly so it doesn't go bad. Uh, you can't let any bacteria get shorter, then you're just at the rot, the, the bad rot phase. And, and so that's what we did. And, and in fact, it was the second one I did since I moved back to St. Louis. The first one I did, I very stupidly was storing in my um, bedroom closet at home. My spouse did not appreciate that. It hit that point. Well, it wasn't, I'd, I clearly had allowed some contamination in, and it hit a point where boy, did it get nasty, like really, really nasty. And I said, oh, just be patient, be patient. It's going to turn the corner and it's going to become really mellow and sweet. And no, it didn't. It just it got so bad. And we had maggots and all because I didn't handle it properly. I didn't have a commercial kitchen when I made that one, which isn't an excuse, but it's my excuse. And, and so on this next one, um, <laughs> I was not going to make that mistake. We did it at the restaurant. We handled it perfectly. We made sure everything was perfectly sanitized, sterilized, and it just went in a closet in the dark. And um, again, we forgot about it. At some point around a year, I said, oh, we got that fish sauce. Let's go check it out. And I, any chef who does this type of stuff, 
there, we, I, I think we're all the same. We're like, okay, uh, who's going to taste it? <laughs> I'm not going to taste it. Are you going to taste it? And so I think I called my dishwasher <laughs> over, who's a great sport. He, he knows what's down. And I said, hey, try this. I think you'll like it. Uh, but I wasn't going to try it. Uh, but it smelled okay. I'm not going to say good, uh, but it smelled okay. And he tried it and he said, oh, it's, it's not bad, but it's not good either. And so then I, I, I gave him about five minutes. He didn't die. And so I got a spoon. I tried it myself. I like, yeah, it's not ready yet. But we strained it, got rid of the bones and the, the carcasses. And then we uh, put it in a barrel. We just happened to have cleaned out a barrel like a week before from, uh, I think I was aging Nochino or something, a black walnut liqueur. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, this could be interesting. So let's put it in there and properly seal it and give it a go. We'll, we'll see what happens. And we put it away. And because it wasn't good, I just wasn't motivated to use it. it I took it as a defeat. And time went by. I, I think it was maybe two years, year and a half. It was a long time because it was just forgotten and it was in a barrel. So I wasn't thinking that that was fish sauce. I thought, oh, that's that empty barrel. And one of my employees was working on a dish and he said, I want the sauce to have this certain flavor. And I said, oh, well, you know, you need like, uh, take any of our um, amino acids. So when we make those misos, those aminos that are made of vegetables, they put off a liquid, we capture that liquid and we use it. We typically don't have much, an ounce or two, but we use it. And so I say, well, jump into the aminos and that'll give you that umami, that miso-esque uh, liquid that you need because he needed it to be a liquid. And he went in to get those and he saw the fish sauce and he didn't even say anything to me. He started using it. Now, had he said something to me, I would have been very quickly saying, oh, don't use that, it's no good. And just letting it sit there collecting dust. But he used it and he served me the sauce. I'm like, man, that's really good. Great job on the sauce, dude. And I said, what'd you end up putting in there? He said, oh, I used the fish sauce. <laughs> I said, what? You used the fish sauce? And, and so then we had to go back and do some tests on it for food safety. And I'm like, oh my God, this has got so good over time. I mean, I, anyone who's listening, if they know the, um, I'm going to blank, what's the famous uh, 22 degrees or something. It's a, it's a, a Thai fish sauce. That's the, the, uh, yeah, yeah, the, the longitudinal land, latitudinal degree of Vietnam. And uh, it's what everyone uses. It's really great stuff. Mm -hmm. It tasted like their aged version of that. It was like a, an aged balsamic. It was so good. Unfortunately, that three years of work, he used up in two weeks. He's like, oh, can I get some more? I'm like, no, you can't get some more. I can have it for you in a few years. Uh, so, so that was a good example of my staff, not necessarily being, because staff turnover, they aren't there from start to finish on a lot of these projects. And to understand the, the value of some of these things. He's just like, oh, yeah, that's the flavor I want. Use it. And it was gone. Uh, and, yeah, I, <laughs> I don't think he will ever get that again because uh, the circumstances were just right.
So a couple questions about that. What did you do with the actual flesh of the fish, the tiny little fish? Yeah, so um, you mean after we strain it off? No, I mean, I mean so you, you broke down all the fish off site and you said, okay, the bones, we're going to do some fish sauce, whatever. But you also had actual fish meat, right? Oh, geez, you're asking me a, a course I made three and a half years ago. Uh, I'm sure I couldn't tell you. <laughs> but you cooked it and you made a dish. Yeah, we, we made a dish because, um, I mean, here's the thing about the restaurant. We don't repeat. We only have one course that we kind of repeat. It's an acorn donut. People love it. Okay, whatever. But we have, um, just for perspective, I mean, I know this is unusual and maybe people think it's fun. We have custom, one couple that comes in every month to every six weeks. They've done it from the beginning. And they were in just a few weeks ago. And I was kind of showing off because I knew the answer, but the couple next to them had, was their first time, but they were really enthusiastic and asking lots of questions. And, and so I said to the couple that had been there so many times, I'm like, well, in all these visits, how many times have you had a dish that you had had before? And they said, once. And it's because we average 100 new dishes a year at the restaurant. And I only say this, not to brag, although a little bit, but to say that when you asked me what I served three and a half years ago, there is zero chance that I will remember what that was. So that you did, I think, uh, anticipate my other question is, so you drain off all the liquid from the fish sauce and then you have these used up uh, carcasses and bones do you then find a way to repurpose them? I mean, ultimately, there's nothing left, isn't there? Um, no, we, I mean, um, no, meaning yes, there is, because then we roast it off and make a fish stock. Okay. Just like, just like we would with any other carcass. And of course, there, it's a, it's a different fish stock, right? It's not like any other fish stock you would get. Um, when we talk about the final product of anything that uses animals, there is ultimately something that's going to go into waste. Because at the end of the day, bones, I can't do anything with bones, but I will work the heck out of those bones before we get to that stage. Like any other good chef, you know, we, we make two or three rounds of stock off of it, if nothing else. Um, and we're always toying with the idea of some type of uh, dish or flatware or something, but I... Uh, only so many hours in the day, so many projects ahead of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, nothing would ever just go straight to trash at that point. Cool. Now, I will say for people who are excited about zero waste, there's a guy in town who came to us and he was composting even our proteins, including bones. And he couldn't keep up with our volume um, because he's just a guy with a, a backyard. But apparently there's a bacteria, I think, that is viable, that you can compost it. You have to control temperature and humidity and all this stuff, much more so than a compost heap. And it was breaking down bones in six weeks. Whoa. That's really exciting to me because that becomes then compost also. Um, it's really exciting to me. It's a project I can't take on, uh, but I hope that the people who are experimenting with this can ramp up to the point of supporting restaurants. Because I think the barrier for a lot of restaurants when they hear me talk about zero waste 
is the idea of keeping your staff trained and on top of breaking down. Like we have a compost bucket that's just plant matter, no animal matter. And then we have wherever the animal matter has to go. Uh, I, I say that eggshells of course can go, but the bones, if, if that goes in the compost, then those are always gonna be in the compost. And then um, my community garden's gonna be pretty upset with me. Right. So if you could find a way to not have to separate, and by the way, then you can be throwing in things like napkins, which happens from time to time. Um, you've really done a service to the restaurant community. If you can figure out that, that piece in volume, um, which I'm sure someone's working on it because this dude came to me and said, let me do this for you. Right. We only have a few minutes left, but I also want to talk to you about your uh, staffing and hiring. As I understand it, everybody gets the same pay. Is that, is that right? Pretty much. There's a little wiggle room in how I disperse tips. Um, but I love that you're asking this today, uh, you know, depending on when people actually listen to the show. Um, we have our vacation in two weeks which is a big part of this. And we're all very much looking forward to it. So that's late um, August. Uh, yeah, we, a, after Labor Day for two and a half weeks. Great. It's paid, paid vacation at tip level, not base pay level. So our pay is uh, everyone's 15 an hour and then tips. We know after three and a half years, even during COVID, you will not make less than $10 in tips. So we can just say you're making 25 an hour, whether you're the dishwasher or the sous chef and up. And so I think we've been averaging the past few months right around 28 bucks an hour. Um, and here's the thing. I, I did have a chef leave me uh, last year and he said, well, you don't value me as much as the dishwasher. And I said, when you came to me, the last question I ask everyone in the interview is what amount of money will make you happy. Don't tell me what you need to survive. What will make you happy so you can stick around uh, so I don't have turnover and we can have continuity. And he said, if you pay me 22 or 23 an hour, I would be happy. Easy. I've got that because I know you're going to make 25 and up. Mm -hmm. And he did. He made probably closer to 28 the entire time. But he wasn't happy that the dishwasher could make nearly as much as him. And I think that says a lot. Um, you know, there are people right now saying, yeah, a sous chef has more training, more experience, more responsibility. They should make more. Yeah, I, I hear you. And I think if I'm paying you more than what you wanted to begin with, be happy for them too. Because guess what? They have rent. They have bills. They have food they have to buy for themselves also. Their needs are no different than yours or mine. And so that's how we do our pay here. Everyone is higher than what they would expect and what they should be getting by industry standards. And now moving on from money, um, they get three and a half weeks paid vacation at tip level and they get health insurance. Uh, the first year I pick up 75% at one year I pick up full. Um, and our next growth on this is I really want that, this is where I could start helping out the kitchen. I, I, I really want to help people do stages if they want to do it during that time. Uh, 
I think both my guys are going to work to, with someone else during this vacation. I'm like, what are you doing? Take time off. But I, I get it. I've been there. And, and I would prefer instead of them going to work, go stage somewhere exciting. Let me pay for the room and board and the, the travel. Um, on a side note, but related, we don't offer stages because I can't, I, I can't justify unpaid labor. In, in my model. Yeah. And so we just don't do it. I have brought people in who've wanted to learn and we pay them, but I, you know, I, I don't like doing that either because it just takes a lot of time and HR work. The last thing, this is a, a small thing, but just yesterday, someone suggested it to me is a book allowance, like a cookbook allowance. Yeah. Like if my staff said, Hey, I, I want to buy a cookbook instead of me buying it for the restaurant, me saying, you know what, you get $250 a year as a cookbook allowance. I think that's a cool perk that I'm going to start doing. And then as soon as that came up, I'm like, wait a minute, what about a shoe allowance? That right there, my friends, is gold because anyone who works on their feet as much as we do needs good shoes. And you may not be as willing to buy new shoes for yourself. But if I said, look, it's kind of like a health savings account, HSA, use it or lose it. I'm going to give you 250 a year for shoes. Just bring me a receipt and so be it. 